Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Actung, actung, and hello, it's James Holland here on We Have Ways of Making You Talk, and this is my interview with Captain Stan Parry, the last surviving officer of the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry. And last time, uh, when we left the uh, left the pod, uh, Stan had just been shot, and we were wondering what was going to happen to him. Well, in this final instalment, we're going to find out. Hope you enjoy it. It was sniper. Well, you're lucky you got your arm and not your head. Yeah. I, 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 was, I was like that. So you was aiming for your head? So I got in there, I'm six, six or eight inches away. Um, anyway, um, my wireless hop constructed a splint, yeah. some bit of wood he found from somewhere, splinted my arm up, and uh, what do we do next? Well, we'll, we'll keep on... Well, first, um, there was a, a little row of poplar trees right. visible. I could see a bit of movement, I thought, in one of them. Mm-hmm. So we machine gunned up and down the poplar trees all the way. And, and the first one we did, a figure dropped out of it. And I think that was the sniper who got me. So... Um, we machine gunned him out of his yeah. hiding, and then I thought we better push on and try and get to the top of this hill. And um, your arm must have been bleeding like hell. Wasn't it, it was. It was slightly painful, um, but it, it wasn't bleeding that much. Oh really? I think the bullet was still in it, or right. a, a part of the bullet. Um, right. The, uh, when I got back, they operated on me. They said there was a piece of metal in there anyway. Right. Um, whether it was um, snub nose or what, I I don't know. But anyway, it was um, it hurt a bit, but it was going to hurt there. It didn't matter whether I went up or down. Right, right, right. It was going to hurt, so um, carried on. And then uh, there was a big bang. 
and uh, my driver said, I've lost all my steering. And uh, uh, Panzer Faust had... Another um, one? A, a third one. And, um, we shot one up on the way. Didn't tell you that. We saw this little truck being towed through the bocage and um, uh, we machine gunned it first and then um, dropped a couple of um, HE shells on it where we thought it was and it blew stuff in the air. It was quite clear we destroyed that. But this was a third one and it had separated off my near side track driving sprocket so the near side track was jammed but the off side track was working and I could go round in circles uh, but um, I tell you I had a very good driver and he um, by inching forward and then braking a bit and then inching forward a bit more he could drag the dead track and still uh, move a bit. So right. um, then, uh, luckily, my wireless op said, I've managed to jury rig an aerial and I, I've got squadron command. But he said, I can't get any response or call from. Uh, uh, a and, uh, A and B, um, my two other tanks, yep. he said, uh, it's just no response from them. Um, anyway, I called squadron command and said, I'm, you know, I'm pretty well crippled. I've, uh, yep. um, both personally and tank-wise, uh, and I think I'm going to have to pull out. And uh, Jack said, well, you better come back to... Uh, squadron and my driver managed to get us down the hill back over the river that's a what one track on one track that's uh, by that time um the bridge had been reconstructed so we didn't have to go we didn't have to Did you go across the, the bailey bridge or something fun a bailey bridge had been put across no i think they'd um reconstructed the right. uh, blown out bridge. They may have built some steel trucks around it to, for support. And but anyway, you got I was not very observant by then. No, I'm sure. Got back to um, Squadron Command and uh, one of the medic chaps had a look and said, Christ, um, FMO, yeah. for medical FMU. Uh, Fullwood Medical Unit, and uh, somebody helped me get down to there. So it's they... goodbye to Bob and Ron and Charlie. Fun. Fun? Goodbye to Bob and Ron and Charlie. Yeah, one of them. Um, got there, and uh, chap took one look at it, and he said, "Oh," he said, "You're for home." Uh, we can't do anything over here, you'll have to be repatriated. Called up an ambulance and uh, still had my pistol. <laughs> ambulance driver said, not taking you, we're wearing that. 
And then I saw um, uh, uh, a Carmen Brigade dingo coming down the road. So I stopped and said, can you look? It was um, the Brigadier. Uh-huh. So I gave him my pistol. <laughs> so, anyway, I got, went back to uh, Portsmouth. On, and that's uh, when you ended up in Bagley? Pardon? And that's when you ended up in Bagley? That was when I ended up in Bagley. That was fun, landed in Portsmouth. Um, I was still able to walk about a bit. And we were had a hospital train parked across a, a, a level crossing or beside a level crossing. Yeah. And there was a pub at the level crossing, so I couldn't have to do with a pint. Ask the medic how long before we moved and it's all a couple of hours before we get on the move so I nipped down to the pub and um, ordered a pint went to pay for it and the landlord said are you insulting me sir? (laughs) and I said no I'm paying for my pint he said you're not paying for beer in here and all of a sudden there were five pints of beer lined up um, and then uh, I uh, had a couple of pints and um, somebody came with a massive basket uh, and it had got all sorts of goodies in it, bars of chocolate and things yeah, like that. And they said, when you, when you go back to your train, will you take that and share it out among the lads? And, Amazing. Uh, then all of a sudden, uh, a lady with a white headdress appeared and she said I've had to search some places for my patients but never a public bar <laughs> <laughs> because they were getting ready to move on right. <laughs> and then we went up to Bagley and um, sister in charge of the officers ward there uh, a, a lady called Sister Ingram I recall her husband was police sergeant at uh, Ringway, oddly oh. enough. Um, she came out and helped me under the hospital, and uh, we uh, got on. They um, they operated and splintered and plastered and did all these things, and then uh, they wouldn't wouldn't let me go. Uh, I wasn't fit enough for. Were you a bit annoyed about that? Uh, was that frustrating? Yes, it was. I wanted to get back to the regiment. Did you? Um, well, one uh, the SRY was such, one lost one's heart to it, you know. Mm. And I, I think that was largely um, Colonel's attitude through, but but everybody was the same. Right. Um, and I had uh, Frank Galvin, who was killed, um, and I never understood that. Frank was blown up and brewed up uh, at the Nuaro, um, and the plan was that I was uh, lead lead troop. Frank was to follow and give me some cover mm-hmm. on the right, 
And when we positioned ourselves at the top of the hill, Stuart Hills was to drive through and go on and attack Belgium. Right. Um, Frank, um, I, I, I only heard this afterwards, I didn't know, because my radio was out of operation, I didn't, I wasn't in touch with anybody, but um, Frank, um, according to the book, was hit by a Panzer Faust, brewed up, and the whole of his crew perished in the tank. Um, this is where Padre Skinner came in. He could not separate the bodies, and they're all buried in a common grave uh, just outside Berjou. But I, I mean, I was hit three times with a Panzer Faust, yeah, and didn't brew up. Um, and I, I couldn't believe that Frank had presented his backside to one, but uh, possible. But I think that it was much more likely that he was hit by okay. a much heavier, uh, probably an 88. Or 75. Uh, um, and, uh, I mean, some of those, those 75 millimeter pack guns, I mean, the pack 40, it's still got yeah, a yes, they were, velocity on it. They yeah. packed a lot of... Um, um, but it, 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 it had all the feel of a, of a dismounted 88 to me. Um, mm. And uh, afterwards it was said that Frank had taken the wrong road. And I told you this yeah, yeah. road diverged mm. and I suspect he'd gone up to the right. And I suspect there was a, an 88 tucked up somewhere in, in that V. Um, so I, I suspect he was hit by a much bigger thing than a Panzerfaust. Yeah. And uh, he was a good friend. He joined the regiment a few days after I did, but C Squadron. So how do you deal with kind of losses of friends? Do you just sort of put it, try and put it out of mind? Um, you try to. Um, I think thinking back and uh, over the years, the, you you don't forget, um, but there are sort of really th three things in your mind. There's uh, the the first your conscience that you actually killed some young chap who was probably not very different from you and had a other but and you shot him without thinking about it, um, and then there were was uh, matters of conscience. Because you'd had those questions of conscience as a 17-year-old, hadn't you? Yeah. Yes. Well, um, so that was related to whether you were a, a, what you were doing in fighting and killing other people. But then there, there was also the conscience of the mind, the um, mind worry, um, the memory. Um, had you been a better soldier, right. had you deployed differently right. on a different occasion, would that have saved the life of uh, some of your men? And so you were leading people and very often directing people to uh, what was 
it's certainly very dangerous and very likely to lead to maiming or death. And you were giving them orders to uh, to to go into that, yeah. and that um, hangs about. And then the other scars you have, of course, are the um, physical scars from wounding. But uh, I mean, they're medical science being what it is. They uh, they they go away. Well, and, yeah, I mean, you know. But there are it, these. It advanced so fast in the war. It, uh, there are these two scars on the mind forever. You did it. And were you good enough? Were you thoughtful enough for, about deployments and attacks and um, where you led people? Um, if you'd been a bit cleverer and uh, very often you were doing doing things very quickly on the spur of the moment yeah. with very little um, solid information or intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, excusable in a lot of ways. Um, I think with coronavirus, um, the government will have made some mistakes. Yeah. But they had to do make those mistakes short notice, little intelligence, little information about the reality of coronavirus and that's very similar to war which you 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 make decisions very quickly mm. you have to do them yeah immediately you haven't got time to analyze it have there's you? no no time to think over even if there is intelligence there mm. there's not a lot of time to think over that and um you get sort of inbuilt um quirks, if you like, like the fact that I would never, ever approach a road junction on the road. Um, very difficult in uh, Normandy in particular, in uh, rural Normandy, narrow, narrow lanes, very often high banks, yeah. and sometimes your tank would be running four or five feet above road level <laughs> and your tracks would be on the yeah. on the banks and uh, but so you avoided roads wherever you could but particularly I avoided particularly going up the junctions um, because of earlier trainings I um, did dismount in inhabited um, areas quite often um, very narrow streets yeah in the French villages yeah uh, ideal for somebody to sit up in the um, in the top bedroom and lob a grenade down into your into your tank so uh, I did not infrequently dismount and have a, a look on the ground yeah before committing my tank through a through the uh, yeah. through a roadway, I had one lovely incident. I um, I, I met a Frenchman. My, my French was fairly passable then, and um, I met this Frenchman on the outskirts village, and I said to him, "Are there any Germans in the village?" 
and he said, I think they've all gone, but he said, there's one house there where I think there might still be some left in. And um, so I, I dismounted and took my gunner with me. Uh, I armed him with a rifle or, or probably a Sten gun. And um, I had my 45 and um, I went to this house and stationed him on the side of the door and I kicked the door in, saw a movement inside and shot. There was a big bang and a whir. I'd shot a grandfather clock. <laughs> um, anyway, we went into the house and the Germans weren't in there. But there was a bottle of wine standing on the table and a glass beside it. Now the cork had been pulled from the bottle, but the bottle was full. And my kind of said, oh, no, I, I, I stop! Because I could see a little trail underneath. I looked underneath and uh, there'd be trail. a six-foot nail through the table yeah. and a spring and connected to a, a flex and fuse Goodness. and an anti-personal... Anti God, I was sharp thinking on your part. And so, uh, uh, having done my training, I was able to dismantle it. And we Is that SAS training that enabled you to do Yes. Mm, yes. Um, Goodness me. Managed to dismantle it. And that was in Normandy, was it? Fun. That was in Normandy, obviously. That was in Normandy. There was another occasion in Normandy where language was handy. I think it was Jack being assailed by a Norman farmer. <laughs> Jack Holman. Jack Holman, yeah. And Jack's language was uh, pure English, <laughs> Cornish. <laughs> uh, he didn't speak French or very little. And he couldn't understand what it's all about. Uh, I translated. This Norman farmer was alleging that a couple of uh, our soldiers had cut stakes from the haunches of one of his living cows. Um, when we tracked it all down, it was a couple of medics who'd seen this some beast and it had got infected it had had a shell a shrapnel wound yep. or something across its horns and it had been infected and they cleaned it up and stuck a field dressing on it <laughs> and this French farmer thought that they'd only Cut a steak out of the living cow, would do that, which was quite fun. So when you were back in in you Bagley, is that that when you met your wife? Did you say? I met my wife there. Um, I uh, got reasonably. I I was walking wounded yep. then, and um, so this was all late August by the time I'd got there. It was uh, late September. I was oh well, it was September the. 20th. Um, 
and uh, if that was a Saturday, it was a couple of days before my wife's birthday. That's why I know date. Um, she was 18 on the 22nd of September, and uh, we um, we were allowed out for the hospital to go into Manchester for a night out. Right. And I and uh, another tag soldier who'd been um, quite badly burned, actually. Um, he used to tap his skin like that and he immediately got a massive hematoma. Um, but he and I went in town and had, and uh, outside the Queen's Hotel in Manchester, uh, there were a couple of girls, um, one a bit older than the other, and uh, we said, would you like to come in for a drink? <laughs> we picked up these couple of girls, one of them was a Dane, and that was uh, Lisa. And uh, we became rather attached to each other anyway. Well, we're just going to take a break now, but do join us again to hear more from Stan Perry. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. So what was Lisa doing over in, in England? Lisa, uh, her parents, uh, her father had a business on uh, on the Thames uh, in London, and uh, he he was into um, feathers, right? Making feather beds and okay. that sort of thing, and they lived in Hendon, but there'd been quite a bit of bombing, and they'd come up to Stockport, where. Her father had a connection with the bloke who owned a factory in Stockport. And anyway, they, uh, she and her mother had come up to Stockport, and uh, uh, her brother was in the air force. He was killed in Italy. But flying for the RAF. What? Yeah. A couple of months after I was wounded the second time, he was flying. He was killed uh, in March. He was flying both. Beauforts, I think. He coastal, hated them. He was in the. Um, they, they had a uh, an air force squadron that uh, was doing reconnaissance over um, Yugoslavia and uh, that region. But uh, they, anyway, the two of them. Uh, I think her sister was the well, one. Auntie Eva must have been involved. Auntie Eva, yes. Yeah. Anyway, they'd, they'd ship them up to Stockport to, to have a, a rest from the bombing in London and a couple of weeks away from home. And uh, the landlady and uh, Lisa had gone into Manchester for a night out, right. uh, which is why she was there. Um, anyway, we uh, we got rather fond of each other, 
and um, we saw each other every day that it was possible to do. Uh, then I got posted down to Newmarket to go back to the regiment. I had to get a letter from uh, Stanley Christofferson in which he wrote uh, the return of this officer to his regiment at the earliest possible opportunity is requested. And he struck out requested and wrote in over the top of it, demanded. <laughs> um, so that, that took a bit of a long time and then I, I got embarkation leave and I rang Lisa and said, I've, I've got a week or so's embarkation leave. Will you marry me before I go back? And she said, I don't know, I'll have to ask my mum. I said, I can be, will you marry me on Monday? And uh, she came back and she said, no, mum says no. It's unlucky to get married on a Monday. If you get married, you'll have to be married on Saturday. <laughs> So we got married on Saturday. How amazing. September the 16th. Um, September the 16th. December, December the 16th. They had I a bit of a checkered career because I was supposed to get married on St Clement Dane. I went out and rejoined the regiment near Maastricht, actually, at the time. So you missed Guylenkirchen? I missed Guylenkirchen. I missed all that bloody, bloody stuff going up to the German border. But I did get involved in the um, stretch across to Heinsberg. And that photograph I got in there of the t tank group, that was a couple of days before Heinsberg. Um, Jackie Holman went on leave. So who, did you have a completely new crew at this point? Yeah, I had a new, completely new crew. And how did uh, you get on with them? My sergeant was a chap called Torbman. Torben. And Torbman, T-A-U-B-M-N-A-N. Um, My local doctor's called Rachel Torbman. Oh. That's an unusual name, I wonder if they can relate to yeah. it. Oh well, he's, um, he's in the list of casualties because we were lagered up and we were going in to attack Heinsberg. A mortar bomb dropped on the top of his tank and killed him. Torbman's tank? Torbman. Uh, and he was just in rest. I mean, it was uh, it was the water, and fell on his tank. But it landed right beside. He was standing up right. in the tank in the turret and um, uh, killed him. And there again, uh, Padre Skinner was absolutely wonderful. He took Torbman's body out. And he got in and he cleaned the the blood and guts from inside of the tank. Um, and uh, that was typical of uh, uh, the Padre. I had a nice incident with him. Uh, somewhere in Normandy I had managed to acquire a small barrel of um, uh, concentrated Calvados. They used to leave it in a barrel yeah. over winter to freeze and then drill through 
and pour off the unfrozen alcohol. About 65 proof. Yeah, I bet. Um, the lads called it rose water. <laughs> but somehow or other I'd acquired a little barrel of this. Right. It was on the back of my tank. And uh, Skinner loved a, um, a, 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 a glass of cider, a, a mug of cider. Right. And he always carried a little um, enamel mug on his belt. Did he? And he came by the tank and he saw the barrel, took his mug out, <laughs> thinking it was cider, a big swig, and yeah. nearly blew his head off. <laughs> and, um, we had a uh, tremendous laugh over there. That was, these are the fun moments yeah, of, sure. of the thing. But he was terrific. Anyway, um, Jack Holman uh, was on leave for this, uh, for the Heinzberg attack. And we had uh, a COY transferred into the regiment uh, called uh, John Coleman. And he was a very nervous bloke. And he called an ogre upon the, to the drop of a hat. And uh, we were like, we were waiting to move off, actually, to, to go and attack Heinzberg. And uh, he called an O group um, and substantially what he asked was do you know what you're doing? Yeah. Um, uh, well I, one gets a bit cynical sometimes I, I yeah. shouldn't be he was a nice chap but but, um, but he had this penchant for bloody O groups and I was on my way back to my tank from the O group and I heard this whir and a big bang. Thought, Christ, the naval verfer. And uh, then there was a whir and another bang, and I thought, oh, getting a bit close. Better get my head down. And I was diving for a bit of cover when the third one went off, and um, I got peppered down my left chest and arm and in my face and my right leg. Um, so, but you were in the tank at the time, were you? No, I was heading back to the tank see, from the bloody O group. Uh, I was on foot. Well, you hadn't had a bloody O group. Yes. And Guy who I see got you. So, uh, so that was you prostrate? That so was, was me, yes. And, um, so when was that? Was that March? January. January. Yeah. And I got... You barely got back. I got shipped into an American hospital, right. which was rather fun, because I was unconscious. Yeah. And uh, when I woke up in the morning, there was a replica Purple Heart on the locker beside my bed. How fantastic. That's rather nice, I've got a Purple Heart. And then uh, this American uh, cleric, or whatever he was, came by with his clipboard and said, uh, what's your regiment, soldier? And I said, Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry. Who the hell are the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry? I said, well, the leading tank regiment in the British Army. Oh, you're a limey. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I'm British. 
Oh, you can't have that then. You took my purple heart away. <laughs> so you never got it back? I never got it back. No, <laughs> never got my purple heart. The show at Rangers, while you were away, they'd spent quite a lot of time with America. Yes, they did. Because they were with the 82nd and then the 84th. Mm. Yeah. Um, so when was I that was, for you, was... Was that for you the war is over? Uh, for me, that was the end, yeah. Um, British Legion, because um, I was so newly wed, were in negotiation to uh, fly my wife out to Brussels to uh, come and say goodbye to me. So it was touch and go for you, was it? It was touch and go. I was um, on the dangerously ill list for three or four weeks. Oh, really? And then I was on the seriously ill list for, for a few more months. Um, you get your pineapples, pineapple juice. <laughs> yeah, that, that was in this... <laughs> American uh, hospital. I was there for a couple of days. Uh, barely. I was getting. Um, I got addicted to morphine. Uh, I was on uh, five grains every four hours or something. Um, and I was on penicillin. Yep. Um, the wonder drug. Four shots. Uh, yeah. Four shots a day. Um, in and out of consciousness. But this American soldier came in. Um, they were sure I was on my way out. And um, in fact, his, his phraseology was He said, is there anything you want? Any last wishes? <laughs> Any last wishes? And I said, I tell you what, I said, I know you've got this PQ thing. I do like a glass of pineapple juice. So next day, a case, a couple of dozen cans of tinned pineapple. Wow, you see, you say that only the English would do that. Only the Americans would do that. Yeah, they were. Uh, well, everybody else. I say these were the, the these were the fun moments. But um, eventually, I was flown back. Um, War was over by this stage. I was into. Do you remember the war ending? Pardon? Can you remember hearing the war was over? Uh, yeah, I was, uh, was, I was fairly then. alive. I was still in a hospital. I wasn't allowed out. Um, but uh, sort of immediately after being wounded, I, I was moved from the American hospital to um, one that was run by um, Belgian nuns. <laughs> uh, they were all nurses. And I still have a little wooden brooch. How fantastic which one of them had bought for me oh. and given me to give to my wife. Oh. Uh, and it's still up in the, uh, in the jewellery box. Uh, uh, How brilliant. Oh, one thing I must ask you, when you came back, did you rejoin Sea Squadron? Uh, yes. yes uh, so where was Jack Holman by that stage? Did he... uh, Jack was still, chair, uh, still uh, squadron commander of Sea Squadron. Yeah. But he went off on leave. He'd done his six months or whatever it I think. Right. Um, yeah, Jack was still um, squadron commander, and I was very welcomed back. Um, Great by everybody. I or even uh, even the colonel came down and said hello. So I was very welcomed back. It was rather nice. Um, Stuart Hills was still about. John Semkin had gone back by that point. Uh, John Semkin had, I think he'd been wounded then. 
and uh, he'd been repatriated. Um, I think all the three squadron commanders at this point had all gone on leave. Right. Back to UK. Yeah. And um, all the squadrons were commanded by the second in commands. One other thing, did you, you know, I remember talking to um, someone and saying that, you know, he never wore his boots in, his, in the tank, he always wore plimsolls. And, other, and another person told me that he had a pair of brogues that he preferred to wear rather than his yes, boots. Yes. Did you have any kind of sort of quirk? Yes, I, wear a, I wore a pair of suede boots. Did you? Where did yeah. you get the suede boots from? They were just desert boots, were they? Um, Somebody from the desert, I suspect. Right, but you had those suede desert boots, did you? Yes. With the rubber soles? That's right, yeah. And they were very handy. You don't want boots clattering around, hobnail boots. Well, not that. I mean, hobnail boots with bunch of eggs in them were very... If you got on the back of the tank... You'd slide all over it, wouldn't you? Yeah, the little rubber soles were nice grip. Yeah. And they were comfortable. Yeah. And if I... Happened to kick the gunner in his left ear. Yeah. It didn't hurt so much as a, <laughs> an ammunition boot. Yeah. Um, no, I wore um, I, I wore a neckcloth. Did you? Like a neckerchief. Rather than a tie. Right. Um, well, actually, it was a scrap of lady's dress made into a bow. <laughs> A uh, different story, that. Um, and uh, that was quite good. But I got moved from the American to this um, hospital just outside Brussels. Which, say, so when, uh, did you, when, did, when were you reunited with Lisa? Um, I was flown back to um, Breeze Norton. Right. Oddly enough. Yep. <laughs> and uh, then ambulanced to uh, just outside Western Supermare. It was the Birmingham Saturday Fund uh, Holiday Home. Right. Apparently Birmingham Birmingham Miners had a right. penny a week fund and they okay. they ran and it had been converted to a chest hospital. Right. The senior chest surgeon was Spaniard, oddly enough, and um, so I was there. They went to work on me. I had um, I had a couple of bits of rib taken out right. because I got shrapnel in my lung. They did a bit of digging, and um, I had a uh, for a long time um, until July, at least. I had a rubber tube in my back, um, which had to be taken out um, every day and cleaned, and uh, that had to be done by a nurse. And then once a week, they used to take uh, an eighth of an inch or so. Apparently, it, it was to drain the lung, right. and if they'd just taken it out, the lung would have enclosed, encapsulated, right. and with the risk of retaining uh, infection in it. So, uh, uh, the, what they did was um, take it out once a week and snip an eighth of an inch off the end of it right. and make it a little bit shorter. Right, right, right. And gradually, um, 
it was July before uh, that was completely removed and then I had to wait for the holes in my back to heal up. Lisa came down to visit me and stayed in a boarding house. It's just next to Supermare, a Western Supermare. Um, and was, what did you, presumably eventually were you invalided out of the army, were you? Sorry? Did you, did you choose to leave the army or were you invalided no, out? No, I was, um, I went back to duty. Oh, did you? I was medical grade B or C or something. Right. Uh, I'd been promoted to captain. Right. I'm, I'm not quite sure why I was promoted to captain, but I discovered myself when I came out of hospital that I, that I was uh, um, acting captain. Mm. And a couple of months later I became a war substantive captain because um, I came out, came out of um, hospital and went back to duty at the beginning of December 45 right. and uh, I was made adjutant of the um, 259 working POW camp. <laughs> I had 3,000 German prisoners under command Goodness. and um, there I had the whale of life. Um, I lived like a king and um, my colonel there, the CO, was a Royal Scots Fusilier who had a club foot and he used to come to the office at uh, eight o'clock in the morning and at half past eight used to say, my leg's troubling me a bit and I never saw him again. So, uh, um, my second in command was um, uh, an Indian Army uh, alcoholic right. who had a bottle of gin for breakfast every morning. So I never saw anything of him. So you left your own devices. Virtually it was my camp. So you never you never went took up your place at Emmanuel? No, no. Thought about it but um, I then had a son right. um, and uh, I was getting on. I decided to uh, take some engineering training um, in particular, draftsmanship uh, was the start of it. Never pursued that particularly. My wife's father uh, had quit his business in UK yeah. and had taken a partnership in a um, cosmetics company in Copenhagen and he had got some connection with a firm called Dansk Ozelid, which uh, printed um, uh, printing paper, um, you know... Uh, yeah, straw-headed paper. Uh, paper, uh, they coated, coated paper for right. producing reprints right. by exposure to ammonia. Right. And uh, they had, um, they had a, what was originally a German license but which had been taken over by the Americans. And so they had a need for a fair communication with Americans and none of them spoke English. So they wanted an English correspondent. And my father-in-law introduced me to them and I got taken on. We, we went to Denmark um, 
Well, I was still on. I was still on leave from uh, leaving the army, right. and so I was still in uniform. <laughs> and, uh, we moved into uh, live in Denmark, and uh, I worked there um, for this company. And eventually, they made me um, office manager, and uh, we we had a little. It was a very tiny plant. It's uh, and it had three three labourer employees, right. well, a, a charge hand and a couple of employees. They put me in charge of that. And uh, so I did three years in Denmark. And then I, I had a three-year labour permit and I came to renew it. And they were worried about unemployment in Denmark then. And uh, they would only renew it on a six-monthly basis. And I said, that's, you know, how do I build a career for life? Yeah, yeah. Um, six months, I came back to the UK. And uh, I went to work for Unilever. Oh. Um, I, I went to work for a day in, in um, England when I first got back, but it wasn't really a very good job. And um, I went to the British Legion officers, um, Employment Bureau in Victoria Street and sitting behind the desk was an ex-Lieutenant General who, curiously enough, um, because I'd been a couple of years or more at the POW camp and we ran an extraordinarily good mess whenever he was anywhere within 50 miles from house. he'd give us a call and say, can I come for dinner? And so I'd got to know him quite well, and there, sitting behind the desk was a chap, and he rang uh, somebody at Wall's Ice Cream, which is Unilever Company, then, and uh, the uh, personnel manager said, well, I'm sorry, um, we we're recruiting supervisors but uh, we've got 12 we're interviewing tomorrow and that's uh, the limit of we can't take anymore and this lieutenant general lit into him and said all the things i've done for you and helped you out with uh, guiding people in your direction either you take him or we stop talking so i got took in as num number 13 and <laughs> and I was the only person they appointed, <laughs> which was quite fun. So I joined Unilever there, and I still have my long service watch. That's amazing. Well, thank you. I hope you've all enjoyed that. I certainly thought that was very, very special. You know, veterans are a rare breed these days from the Second World War, and to have someone that age, that articulate that kind of thoughtful about his experiences and what it meant but also was told with with such humor was was really remarkable and um you know it was a real treat for me and i hope it's been a treat for you as well thanks very much cheerio <laughs> <laughs>